0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Wednesday, April 14th. Today, back in the day on April 14th, 1841, Edgar Allan Poe published the first detective story. The story was titled The Murders in Rue Morgue. At the time, Poe called his story a tale of rationation. That was because the word detective hadn't even been coined yet. Story centered around Poe's eccentric and brilliant character, C. Auguste Dupin, who solves mysteries through deduction and imagination. C. Auguste Dupin laid the foundation for future fictional detectives such as Sherlock Holmes. And the story established many tropes in the detective genre. Today, back in the day on April 14, 1962, the first baby elephant to be born in a U.S. zoo was born right here in Portland. After a long gestation period of 21 months, the baby boy elephant was born to much celebration. When he was born, he stood about three feet tall and weighed 150 pounds. The next day, the front page of the Sunday Oregonian read, Fuzz-Covered Male Elephant Makes History. Zookeepers called him Fuzzy Face until he was officially named Packy the Pachyderm after a KPOJ radio contest. Packy's birth was a rare event and it received international attention. Life magazine even devoted 11 pages to him in their issue on May 11, 1962. Visitors came from all over the world to see the famous baby elephant. The Oregon Zoo set its attendance record in 1962 with more than 1 million visitors. Packy lived for 54 years at the Oregon Zoo. At the time of his death in 2017, he was the oldest male Asian elephant in the Northern Hemisphere. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with author Ed Battistella. X-Ray. And first up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. The Oregon state unemployment rate is down to 6%. It's not quite back to its pre-pandemic record low of 3.5%. It is a continuing trend in the right direction. It is less than half of its peak of 13.2% from 11 months ago, the high point of the pandemic. So far, Oregon has added back over 150,000 jobs since the early days of COVID, about 54% of the total lost. Oregon also added 20,000 jobs in March. Most of these come in the hospitality and service industries as bars and restaurants are slowly reopening after the winter shutdown due to spiking COVID cases. At this point, the majority of all job cuts coming right now are probably a result of permanent layoffs. This could make the path to economic recovery more difficult in the coming months. Over 9,000 Oregonians filed for unemployment benefits in the past two weeks, a bit of a spike since January. The spike also comes as many workers are running out of eligibility after a year of unemployment. Running out doesn't necessarily mean you'll stop receiving benefits – But filing for an extension will be necessary. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Tuesday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 567 new coronavirus cases. That brings the total number of cases to 171,398. The OHA also reported five new deaths. Oregon has now seen a total of 2,446 deaths. Oregon has paused all use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Nationwide, six women aged 18 to 48 experienced a severe blood clot within weeks of getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's very rare, but just to be cautious, the FDA has advised all states to pause all Johnson & Johnson vaccinations The two-dose forms of the vaccine are still safe to receive. That means if you have a vaccination appointment at the convention center or the airport, you don't have to worry. If you had an appointment to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you will have to schedule an appointment to get a different dose. If you receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, be on the lookout for symptoms. These include a severe headache, abdominal pain, leg pain, or shortness of breath. A group of North Portland businesses are asking the city to put a stop to street racing in the area. The North Portland Coalition for Safe Streets sent a letter to City Hall demanding it do something about the spike in late-night racing during the pandemic. The coalition represents businesses ranging from big companies like Columbia Sportswear to smaller local businesses like Savoy Studios, a decorative glass company. The coalition argued that the large crowds and dangerous driving are keeping their blue-collar workers from getting home safely from the industrial parks. They also requested an in-person meeting to discuss the issue. This is the second letter they have sent to the mayor's office. The first one came last October. Mayor Ted Wheeler has not responded or commented on the matter, North Marine Drive, Lombard Street, and Ramsey Street are the most frequented strips for races. The intensity of the racing escalated last fall, culminating in early November when cars shut down the intersection of MLK and Columbia. When police showed up, there was a conflict and shots were fired in the air. The incident resulted in 14 arrests days later. The letter also expressed concern about the frequency of the races increasing as the weather improves. The Oregon House voted to make displaying a noose a crime of intimidation. House Bill 2697 passed unanimously over the weekend, 47 to 0. It would make it a Class A misdemeanor to display the hate symbol in order to threaten or intimidate another person with bodily harm. Senator Elizabeth Steiner Hayward from Beaverton compared it to how Jewish people react to a swastika. Maximum punishments would be under one year in jail and a $6,250 fine. The bill has been sent to the Senate and is nearly identical to Senate Bill 398, which passed earlier this month and is now in the House Judiciary Committee. Whichever one of these dual-tracked bills advances furthest will pass. Dual tracking of bills is very common. Oregon would join Louisiana, Virginia, California, New York, Maryland, and Connecticut as states that have criminalized the display of nooses. This comes the week after the House unanimously voted to make Juneteenth a legal state holiday. Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day, is celebrated on June 19th and commemorates the day in 1865 when enslaved Black people in Texas were told they were free. Two months after the end of the Civil War and two years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. The Idaho State Legislature listened to a plan that would allow the state to absorb about 75% of Oregon. On Monday, representatives from a group called Move Oregon's Border for a Greater Idaho laid out their plan to Idaho lawmakers. As they envision it, only the northwest part of Oregon that includes Portland and Eugene would remain as Oregon. The rest of the state would get absorbed to become greater Idaho, extending the Idaho border all the way to the Pacific Ocean. This would create the third largest state in the country by area. If all went according to plan, they would eventually reach out to portions of eastern Washington and northern California with the same proposal. Supporters of the idea argue that the rural Oregon population gets overpowered in the vote by the liberal urban contingent. Detractors of the idea question the logistics of funding things such as roads, schools, and state retirement pensions. There's also differences in the minimum wage and the legality of marijuana, recreational or medical. The group conducted advisory votes by county last fall and found that two counties, Jefferson and Union, wanted to join Idaho while two others wanted to remain in Oregon. Five more Oregon counties will vote on it in May. The votes don't carry any legislative weight, but are there in order to help convince lawmakers of what their constituents want. For the plan to pass, the Idaho and Oregon state legislatures would both have to approve it and the US Congress would have to sign off on it too. And finally, some good news. National parks will be free this weekend. That's right. As a way of celebrating National Parks Week, the National Parks Service will offer free admission to all parks nationwide this Saturday, April 17th. The NPS will offer six such days like this throughout the rest of the year. The offer is only for free admission. Camping and other fees will still apply. In Oregon, that means that Crater Lake the John Day Fossil Beds, Oregon Caves, and Lewis and Clark National Parks will be free. In Washington, this covers Mount Rainier, Olympic, and Fort Vancouver, among others. Remember to double check before you go, as not all areas of the parks are accessible right now. due either to seasonal restrictions or the pandemic. And that's today's quick six local rundown. Next up, we're gonna listen to an interview with Ed Battistella. He's a professor of linguistics at Southern Oregon University in Ashland and an author. Andy Lindbergh and Julia Oppenheimer spoke with him about his latest book, Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels Insulting the President from Washington to Trump.
1: Good morning. This is X Ray in the Morning. I am Andy Lindbergh, and I am joined as often we are on Wednesdays by Julia Oppenheimer. Morning. Good morning. We are going to have a lovely conversation with uh, Ed Battistella, an author and professor of linguistics at Southern Oregon University in Ashland. He's recently named as a finalist for the Oregon Book Award in nonfiction for his book, Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels, Insulting the President from Washington to Trump. Ed, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. So how does it feel to be nominated for an Oregon Book Award for Nonfiction?
2: Oh, yeah, it's a great honor, and there's some great other books in there, too. So I'm really just excited about the opportunity to uh, you know, talk about books with folks and to, and to get the word out about books and writing and insults.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, I had the opportunity to, to read in advance of of your book and uh, there are some absolutely inspiring insults uh, in there. So what what inspired you to study insults, especially those directed toward presidents?
2: Well, I, I'm always interested in how we do things with words and how we use language to sort of create relationships and, and also um, um, challenge people. So uh, right after the... Uh, 2016 election I was talking to an editor that I work with and I had, I had done a book on public apologies mm. and she was sort of saying that well there's, there's really nothing good on insults. Um, there are lots of books on British insults so the the, uh, the English are way ahead of us on this
3: um, The British but, are really good insulters though yeah
2: Winston Churchill and, and um, Oscar Wilde and those folks are just uh, it's just terrific. Um, So, I decided to put together a a collection of of 500 or so um, ways that presidents have been insulted and and often how they responded. Um, Some respond well, some not so well.
1: Well, in the book you talk about the difference between an insult and a critique. Can you tell us a little bit about that difference?
2: Yeah, it's really, if I, uh, you know, if, if If a student of mine is writing something and I say, this isn't very good, you need to keep working on it, um, that's a critique. Um, If I tell them that they should drop out of college because they have no talent, um, that's more of an insult. (laughs) The one that I use as as an example of this was uh, Bob Corker, the former uh, Tennessee senator. Um, in, In the early days, he sort of critiqued the Trump administration saying that you know, they really haven't reached the level of competence that's needed. Um, a few months later, he said that the uh, White House was basically an adult daycare center. Um, so that that sort of captures the distinction between critique and insult.
3: That's a, that's a really good recent example of some of the um, fun insults that are in your book. Do you have a favorite, maybe from the distant past?
2: I, I do. One of my favorites... Um, Is from about the the early 20th century, and it, it's from Clarence Darrow, the the famous attorney in the um, Sacco and Vanzetti trial and the um, Scopes Monkey trial. Um, he was talking about uh, Warren Harding, and he said that he was a human smudge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
2: I just thought, it's it's so great because you can sort of see the you know the fingerprint on the window, and it it just sort of Diminishes Harding uh, uh, terrifically.
3: Yeah, that that really struck me about some of, especially the older insults. They were just so graphic, in like just such a beautiful way. Like like the smudge.
2: Yeah, there there were some really terrific ones, and um, you know one of the one of the great insulters of all time was Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he he managed to he got into this um, sort of four way election in nineteen twelve with Woodrow wilson and uh, eugene debs and his his former protege um taft and he p- particularly uh, attacked taft uh, he called him uh, you know a a second rate uh, intellect with uh, brains of uh, two guinea pig power and uh um, a fat head and and other things but my my favorite one was one that uh half-shot back at uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he called him a a, a um, and Is it, that
3: even yeah, allowed
1: can to you, say
3: on the radio?
2: Can
1: you break that down yeah, for I, I, us, please? Yeah, it, it
3: sounds
2: like something you can't say on the radio, um, but it actually means a schmoozer. Um, so <laughs> it, it comes from this old word, um, fugal, which is, um, means to, to fool or to trick. And, uh, and the the, uh, a sort of corruption of the word coney, meaning rabbit, like Coney Island. Hmm. Um, so it's basically someone who tricks other people into doing what they want. Um, but yeah, it, it sounds like it should be a, a sort of word you can't say on the radio. But Can you
3: say the word one more time? Honeyfugler? It's honeyfugler. Wow. That's and a great good, word. I want to One
2: that. G or two. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically it just meant a, a sweet-talking schmoozer.
1: So what's, what's the process like for, for researching uh, a book like this?
0: You know,
2: I had to, um, I really put the interlibrary loan people to uh, a lot of work <laughs> checking out uh, all sorts of biographies of presidents. Um, and, and part of it was kind of figuring out, you know, who were their adversaries? Who hated which presidents? Um, and, and who was going to say bad things about them? so there's some there's some great resources in the Federalist papers and and so on um but yeah, it was a lot of sort of um tricky googling and then um really speed reading a lot of or skimming a lot of presidential biographies and um so I'm sure there, there are probably some things that I've missed and um and there were new ones coming all the time so that, that's, the, <laughs> that's that's the great part
3: you get to you can always write a sequel right <laughs> you know I,
2: new things occur to me all the time, just sort of you know tracking how the insults go up and down during someone's term and mm. things like that. there's lots of great uh, opportunities out there for insults
3: well, and I think it's really interesting we have this way of sort of idealizing the past and and thinking that it was a more civilized era, but your book really shows us that there was a, just as much political mudslinging back then as there is now. How are insults different?
2: In the yeah, but I think they're really um, the same in a lot of the categories. So people would be insulted for, um, th- there'd be sort of gendered insults based on weakness, um, insults on intelligence, insults on honesty, um, uh, loyalty to the country, um, being sort of, I guess the, the insult of being a, a monarchist has kind of died off and, and nobody really refers to people as, you know, a, a Caesar anymore. We sort of replace that with other villains. Um, but a, a lot of things are really the same. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was sort of excoriated as a, a traitor and being under the thrall of France. Um, and then the two presidents that followed Madison and, uh, Monroe were were basically considered, you know, I think Madison was called uh, Jefferson's political pimp. Um, (laughs) So they were, you know, all sorts of uh, a lot of the things we see today are are still there in the in the early days of the Republic. Even George Washington was uh, attacked.
1: Well, the reading reading your book, it really appears that the founding fathers did not care for one another. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Um they um John Adams referred to uh um Washington as old mutton head and at one point he said that you know, the only reason he had succeeded was he kept his mouth shut so no one could see how stupid he was.
1: Yes, I I appreciated that. As someone who probably talks a little bit much, I, I'm often on the other end of an insult like that. Yeah.
2: yeah Being quiet has always worked for me as well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Uh, you're listening to X-Ray in the Morning um, our guest, I'm Andy Lindbergh, and our guest is uh, Ed Battistella speaking about his book Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels Insulting the President from Washington to Trump uh, you write that insults can tell us what's changed about American language and politics prejudices and ideals over the decades but they can also tell us what stayed the same what do you think have been the constants in American political insults.
2: Oh yeah, in the, toward the end of the book I give a little um, list of insults, a kind of glossary of insults, and it's really th- things like um, um, intelligence, and intelligence sort of works both ways. You can either be too smart or too dumb. Um, <laughs> so they insulted uh, James Monroe by saying he didn't have a, uh, enough brains to hold his hat on, um but then other presidents would be um insulted as being sort of um too pedantic, um too aristocratic and so on. Um so intelligence sort of cuts both ways. Um almost most presidents have been, been sort of called um cowards at one point or another. And I, I was sort of impressed with uh, the the term that uh, John Adams used for uh um, Jefferson he called him a cowardly poltroon which is a sort of um, redundancy because a poltroon is also a coward
1: <laughs> well i I appreciate that um, and I I can't remember who said it of Taft but Taft is described as being simply big fat and lazy
2: oh yeah I think that was Robert La <laughs> Um but one of my favorite ones about Taft was that um, was from Teddy Roosevelt, and he said, he means well, but he means well feebly.
3: <laughs> you <laughs> just, just seem kind of like you have an encyclopedic knowledge of insults towards presidents. I mean, I'm sure oh, it's yeah. years of research in the making, but can if I just name a president, can you give me an insult?
2: Oh, I'll, I'll give it a try, sure. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, Lyndon Johnson.
2: Oh, yeah, so um, he was, let's see, um, he was called... Lyndon Benedict Johnson, and also Judas Johnson by the uh, Southern conservative Democrats who thought he was um, being Uh sort of selling out to the uh, Massachusetts liberals and things like that. Um, One of my favorites, though, um, was that I think it was Avril Harriman um, said that Johnson was a a centaur, um, part man, part horse's ass. (laughs)
1: well speaking of horse's ass Trump more than any other recent president was defined by his ability to convey disgust and demean others Uh, do you think in the age of social media, Twitter, Fox News, insults will remain an important way to gain political power?
2: yeah it's an interesting um, it's sort of an interesting moment Um, and this may be one of those moments Sort of like the the post Nixon um, time when there was when there's a little bit of uh, kind of calming down. Um, so we've we've got this sort of call for accountability, uh, maybe a new um, level of civility, but I think you know with, with the way that uh, the with the way that the right is kind of um, creating new social media and new newer and Newer and more extreme um, news platforms, I imagine that uh, you know they'll just be people to replace Rush Limbaugh and and that crowd all the time with uh, all sorts of insults.
1: Well, how, how will insulting be changed if I'm you know calling someone a poltroon entirely to a group of other people who also agree that the president is a poltroon?
2: Yeah, there is a sort of preaching to the choir effect to to a lot of this. Um, But I think every now and then you get someone who is able to come up with an insult that really captures the essence of someone in a new way. Um, So I I think back to um, uh, the Congresswoman Patricia Schroeder of uh, Colorado and she she coined the expression a Teflon-coated president, Mm. Reagan. And it, it really sort of God, that's um, fitting. let people look at him in a new way. It sort of encapsulated what was uh, you know, his, his kind of essence of um, nothing nothing stuck to him.
1: Well so, And I recall that being a kind of uh, uh, it kind of turned around to be something that was to his advantage, that you know, that he, he was the the president to which no scandal could stick
2: um so, so the insult didn't even stick to him it's yes kind of yes
1: right. yes <laughs> so are are famously are there are there examples of of uh of insults that that presidents kind of of turned into a shield instead and 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 adopted
2: yeah it it takes a certain kind of um a certain kind of wit to do this i think um john f kennedy was particularly good at this and, and he was you know, up against Nixon, so um, it it was kind of a, um, an uneven battle, I guess. But uh, Nixon at one point called him an economic ignoramus. Um, and Kennedy responded by saying, you know, uh, Mr. Nixon calls me an economic ignoramus. I just call him a Republican and he says that's going too low. Um, so, so he was able to sort of use a little verbal judo on, uh, on Nixon.
3: <laughs> Do you think our insults have gotten less creative?
2: Um, certainly from presidents. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was just terrific um, at this. He, at one point, he called um, Woodrow Wilson a Byzantine logothete.
3: I, w- I wouldn't even know what
1: that We're going to have to bleep what? that. I'm sorry. <laughs> that,
2: and that's what, uh, the, on, the, on the cover of the New York Times, I think the next uh, next day or so they were saying that all of our journalists had to go to the dictionary to figure out what that meant <laughs> um and and basically a, a logothete was a sort of accountant um so he was sort of saying he was he was like an old byzantian um beam <laughs> counter um but yeah teddy had this you know he was a writer um, and he had this um vocabulary and sort of way about way about him of uh um, getting under the getting under the skin of his opponents, but also capturing the attention of the journalists um and today it's much more um, um demagogic it's really you you call somebody crazy or mm. um stupid or a loser um it, it, it it's a little less um erudite in terms of insults
3: yeah not quite so elegant
2: <laughs> journalists are still pretty good at it um <laughs> So I know um, Maureen Dowd referred to the Clintons as the Tom and Daisy Buchanan of politics, <laughs> uh, right, a sort of Great Gatsby illusion. <laughs> That's uh, great. Um, Henry Luce called uh, Harry Truman uh, a, a small-town babbitt, another sort of Sinclair Lewis um, reference. So sometimes you get, um, particularly among journalists, there were, there were some really good uh, insulters. H.L. Mencken was one of the best. Um,
1: well, I feel like we've 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 lost that uh, avenue of of uh, journalists being able to do that. Uh, you know, I don't I don't expect to turn on the, the local news and have the the newscasters being uh, slinging insults against political figures. Uh, I suppose a lot of that has, has moved online. and there are folks who, who would consider themselves journalists who have taken over the, the role of the, you know, the haranguing small newspaper uh, uh, editor who's uh, focused on, on a president. Um, but theres you, you talk about there's a, an art to crafting a good, a good insult and, and that we have a, a long history of, of verbal sparring in the country what are what are some of the unexpected unexpected positives to political insults?
2: Oh yeah I think uh, you know one of them I think is just this this sort of sense of language that people get in the sense that you know sometimes a politician can really um, or a, a writer can really kind of move above the the, the kind of um, load. Um, demagoguery of of discussion and really sort of craft something that that endures. I think of someone like Hunter S. Thompson, um, who referred to uh, you know Richard Nixon as a, um, a a jabbering dupe of a man and a uh, I, I forget the rest of it, um, but he was just able to just kind of capture that um, that that love of language. And that that love of sort of crafting an image, um, so some of it can really get us to think of someone in a kind of new way, um, in a, in a way that just calling someone, um, you know, crazy or stupid doesn't doesn't allow. Mm-hmm. And um, to go to your earlier comment, I think some of this has to do with the um, the loss of the fairness doctrine back in the in the Reagan oh, administration, mm-hmm. where there was much more of a a line between news and opinion, and the opinion um uh the opinion folks would actually have a lot more leeway to to dig into a um, dig into a character and and um, sort of give them some insults and now you're really kind of preaching to the choir,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, your your book, Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels, Insulting the President from Washington to Trump, uh, is a finalist for the Oregon Book Award for Nonfiction. Uh, when and where will this book be available to purchase in, and for us all to build up our insult library?
2: Oh, yeah, I think um, it's a... It's available at at most bookstores. I know uh, Powell's and um, a a lot of the small bookstores. It's it's on Amazon and also the um, uh, Oxford University Press, the publisher, has it on their website as well. And I've got a box in the trunk of my car, (laughs) if anybody... uh,
3: If we run into you, we'll ask.
1: (laughs) We'll meet you at the Human Being um, just off campus. And uh, we can buy them out of your trunk. Uh, Ed Battistella, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning and, and congratulations on your, your nomination for the Oregon Book Award.
2: Thanks. It, it's a great honor. It's been great to be with you.
1: Our great pleasure. To you. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thanks to Professor Battistella for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five star review. And thank you, as always, to democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
2: X-Ray.